episode of the tome show is brought to you by listeners like you thanks for using the tomes amazon and DD classics affiliate links hi this is monty cook designer of numenera and you're listening to the tome welcome to the tome a DD news reviews and interviews show and i'm your tome host jeff greiner and I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 236, we're going to fill you bricks in on the dark as we look at Planescape PDFs available at dndclassics.com, as well as a short interview with one of the main Planescape designers, Monty Cook. And joining us for this this episode is our very own senior editor, Sam Dillon. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, thank you. As well as the host of our very own roundtable, James Introqueso. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yay. Uh, Jeff and our two guests are each have each picked one Planescape PDF to share with you today. Me, I'm still adjusting to my new job, and thus I'm a little bit less prepared. Although I have read the original box set in the past. The original box set of which, it's interesting to point out, is not actually available on D&D Classics. They have all these adventures available, but not the actual campaign setting. Because that, they're lame. <laughs> had that been available, I probably would have picked that and just remembered what I read before. Sure. Well, and, and I think that's worth noting for people as well, because if you want to pick up Planescape Adventures, they've got them. But if you want to pick up the campaign setting, it's not there. And I think maybe we need to have a conversation about which of these PDFs are useful without the campaign setting and which of them kind of need that extra help. But oh, before well, we get into none that, of them. what's that? <laughs> I said, oh, well, then none of them. <laughs> Show's over. Goodbye. <laughs> before we get into the actual products, though, let's – some of the listeners, after we did our last PDF uh, mini review episode, um, said that they would have liked to hear us discuss the actual like product and process of buying PDFs through D&D Classics to, to briefly sort of review that experience. Um, so – which of us actually got our products off of D&D Classics? Uh, I, I did. Yeah. Okay, so we all did. Mm-hmm. Excellent. What was that like? What was the, the purchasing process like? Well, uh, so if, if any of the listeners have a, uh, an account at RPG Now or Drive-Thru RPG, they will greatly recognize the format because dndclassics.com is administered by those very same website people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically I use my same – Log in and everything for D and D classics. Uh, it just takes me to the D and D menu, and and you can sort things by uh, edition and all that kind of stuff, or you can search by keyword or title or anything as as well as or setting um, or setting right. And and then you and it works just the same as our as Drive Through RPG. So what you do is you pick things. You can look at details about it. Some of them have little previews. You can uh, send it into your cart, and then when you're ready and and all that, you check out and you can pay through PayPal or you can pay with a credit card. 
and then they uh, add it to your account, and then you can download it right from there. And Sam, you forgot one very important step, which is first go to the tomeshow.com. That's right. That's right, yes. <laughs> Click on the D&D Classics affiliate link and then just, shop. Yeah, I just assumed everybody would do that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the most important step. The rest of it you can figure out. But that step you have to do. Um, so, so yeah, so the process is fairly straightfor- straightforward and simple. If you're used to online shopping for PDFs at all, it's pretty much the same the same setup, right? Um what about the quality of the PDFs? How how good are the scans? Oh, I have a problem. Oh. My so the um, the scans are okay for this product that I have. That I'm I'm reviewing Well of Worlds. It's a 128 page PDF product. I actually also have a hard copy of it. Um, but one of the listeners also had said that he would have appreciated us commenting on the quality of the PDF and the maps and all that. So I actually bought the PDF of this product as well. And unfortunately, there's a, a poster map in the back of this product, and it ha- it's double-sided. So one side has one thing, and the other side has the other. But on the PDF product, there's only one side of it scanned oh, twice. Oh, lame. So it's missing the DM's side <laughs> of the map. Um, and the thing is that it's not necessary to run any of the adventures, but it's a nice little thing to have, and it's nice to sort of get an overview of, and they sort of messed up that way. And a lot of times when there's been a problem on – because there have been other products where there's been a map missing or whatever, and just telling uh, Wizards of the Coast customer service causes them to go back and re-upload, and they'll update the product. So I'm, I'm going to contact them, and maybe they'll update it, but as of yet, it has not been updated. And apparently it's a known problem, so it's possible that they might just not have a scan of that particular map um somewhere you would think so you've got a copy of it right lend it to him yeah right (laughs) uh so the other thing about it is that this product um planescape has a very particular uh type of font and and that comes across okay but this particular book and i'm not sure how the other books are formatted it uses a lot of dark brown Mm -hmm. and light brown Mm -hmm. as part of the font the font color choices and it's okay on paper, but on the PDFs, sometimes uh, when they have long sentence, uh, long paragraphs of like italicized light brown wording on a s- sort of eggshell colored background, it doesn't really come through that well. It looks pretty washed out. So it's okay to read, but I don't have any visual impairments. If you have maybe the slightest visual impairment, you might have a problem with it. Or maybe if your PDF reader, whatever you're using, doesn't render very well, you might see a lot of areas that look washed out. So so I have to say the PDF quality is okay, but it's not that great. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've actually generally heard good things about the PDF quality mm-hmm. of things on, on D&D Classics. And I've and, generally had okay yeah, experiences. And I've, I have other PDF products from there, and they've all been fantastic. This is the first one that I've had that's really been kind of not great. Well, yeah. and I had a similar experience. Um, my, my PDF was also – I was not impressed with the quality of the scan. When I wanted to zoom in and, and read it at one column at a time, and you know, cause sometimes that's just a little easier on the eyes, mm-hmm. I zoom in and it all just turns fuzzy because the scan was low enough quality that mm-hmm. the, the text wasn't rendered you know, well enough to, to zoom yeah. in. James, what yeah. was your experience? Uh, my experience was actually pretty good. Uh, the Harbinger House PDF – Came through great. I did notice what Sam's talking about, the brown, uh, particularly like the long read aloud italicized text when it's Mm -hmm. in large paragraphs 
does look a little washed out and a little bit fuzzier than the rest of it. Um, so, and my eyesight is also pretty good. Uh, so I didn't really have an issue, but it, it is harder to read than the rest of the text, which is all, you know, normal black font. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the, uh, great Mudron March right now. And I see that some of the pages like are a little skewed. Um, mm-hmm. there seems to be like some random blue line on two of the pages. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, and the pages also seem to be different sizes because I'm actually usually I look at I and I know this is something else we'll talk about, but I usually use my iPad uh, and I'm on the computer right now and I can see that they're different widths mm-hmm. in the scan. So let's talk about that thing that Tracy just alluded to that we were going to talk about. I should be letting her ask the question since she doesn't have a product to review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jeff. Jeez, what am I thinking? I'm just so used to guiding everything. <laughs> Tracy, why don't you ask the last question? So I just mentioned that I read it on the iPad. How do you guys read the PDFs when you use them? Uh, So I read mine on my laptop, and I also read mine on my phone. Uh, I take the Metro here in D.C. to work every day. And uh, one of the things that's great about the library at D&D Classics or DriveThruRPG or wherever is that you can download your product as many times as you want onto as many different platforms as you want. Uh, and uh, and it does work on my iPhone. Uh, so I actually did a fair amount of reading uh, on the commute back and forth uh, into Washington, D.C. So how did you get it onto your phone? Uh, I went to the – the first time I did it, I went to the website, and uh, you could download it from there sure. um, and uh, and then get it onto the phone. Uh, but then it got kind of annoying because with, like, the iOS, I had to do it every single time. Mm-hmm. So then I just eventually um, emailed myself a copy of the PDF okay. and uh, and was able to download it and, more and easily that way. What app did you use to read it? Uh, I used whatever the PDF reader on the iPhone is. The default? Yeah, yeah. It was actually through the email app, so I'd have to open up the email app anytime I wanted to check it out. Okay. Sam, how did you uh, read your PDF? Uh, I have – well, at first I looked at it on my laptop, and I also have an Android tablet, a Lenovo uh, ThinkPad Android tablet that I – it's a 10-inch screen. So uh, it's relatively large, and uh, it actually renders pretty good. I just use a PDF program there. It's not like an. It's not using one of the other electronic formats. It's just mm-hmm. pure PDF, uh, and I downloaded it right onto my. So you just download it from the yeah. Yeah. to the browser on your tablet. Yep. Mm-hmm. I also could access it through Dropbox. So yeah, and that's uh, actually what I did. That's the, that's generally my process is that I take the PDFs and I download them on my laptop or on my desktop. And I put them in Dropbox, and then from Dropbox, I can open it on my iPad. And then I usually get a better experience converting it over into the Kindle app. And so I actually mm-hmm. read it through the Kindle app. Um, if nothing else, the Kindle app remembers where I left off, and Dropbox doesn't. You know, Dropbox always takes, yeah. takes you to the beginning, whereas the Kindle app will say, oh, you left off on page 74. Here's page 74. Yeah, because yeah. I, use, I use Dropbox too, and I also use GoodReader, and I think think it remembers where I save things. I've heard good things about Goodreader. I just have a hard time justifying paying for it twice. Right. Because there's an iPhone version and an iPad version, and they're not universal. Yeah, I can actually save. I just downloaded it onto my uh, tablet from my Dropbox, so I don't have to worry about it remembering where I was. Because mm-hmm. my, my PDF reader within you know that's on my tablet actually will remember. Will remember. Yeah. yeah. Right on. Nice. 
So I guess that's our experience, right? Yeah. All right. Then then let's go over to and get into the planescape of everything. First up is a chat with Monty Cook. Tracy? We're here now with Monty Cook. Hey, Monty. Who are you? Um, yeah, you know, uh, I've been wondering that myself. Um, <laughs> it's a very existential question. It, it is, really. Do we have enough time for this? <laughs> um, no, uh, so I'm a, I'm a game designer. I've worked uh, on professionally in the game industry for uh, whatever it's been, 26 years now. Um, I'm probably known best for Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition uh, as one of the co-designers of that game. Um but I've worked on a lot of different things, uh, various editions of D&D and uh, a lot of my own stuff. And uh, yeah, so I'm just this game guy. There you go. So one of those things that you worked on uh, back in the day, if you will, uh, is this thing called Planescape. And that's sort of the focus of our episode tonight. Um, that is awesome. And, and, and you did a lot of work on it. So we thought you would be an expert on Planescape. Okay. Is that fair? Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start off with, with what is Planescape? Uh, in the words of one of the designers who did a lot of Planescape work, what is Planescape? Um, well, you know, Planescape is this thing that is this box set that showed up on my desk my very first week at TSR. And it blew me away so much in its originality and freshness and just the completely different take on D&D that I knew I had to work on it. Um, it, is, it is a setting that encompasses all of the planes um, that uh, D&D you know, had used since you know, the very beginning. Right, even in the earliest uh, editions of the game, we had these cool little maps of the planes, but we didn't really know what was there. We had Queen of the Demon Web Pits, but you know we didn't really know much else. And Planescape just said, "Let's make this all a setting that you can just go to, and you don't have to wait until your 18th level. Um, it's it's a place where you can start a character as a person who's already out on the planes." Um, and it was, in my opinion, one of the most, if not the most imaginative things that, uh, the TSR ever did with the game. Yeah. So, and talking about the imaginative part, my understanding is like the art direction was much different for it as well. Well, um, it was, and here's why, um, (laughs) um, so the, the management at TSR, took a very, very firm hand when it came to art. But the management at TSR could only sort of pay attention to a certain number of things at a time. We used to call that the Eye of Sauron. And so when the Eye of Sauron was on you, that meant it wasn't on someone else. And one of the things that was amazing about Planescape was was that as the game was being developed, the Eye of Sauron didn't fall on it. I think it was falling on... Mistara, um, if you remember that game mm-hmm. line. Um, so that meant that we, and by we, I mean really uh, at the time, this would have been game designer Zeb Cook, editor David Wise. Um, they got together with an artist, Tony Dieter Lizzie, and um, not unlike uh, Tim Brown and Brom working on Dark Sun, they brought the artist in at the beginning and they said, help us create this really cool imaginative setting. And, uh, and Tony just 
knocked it out of the park. Awesome. Right on. So um, talk a little bit about that process of working on Planescape. Like you, you clearly weren't there at the beginning since there was a box set done with your first week of TSR. Right. Uh, but as I look through a lot of the Planescape products, it seems like your name is on an awful lot of them. Well, so you, you know – yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I said, as soon as I laid eyes on it, I just devoured this box set and I said, this, this is what I want. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm at TSR. This is what I want to work on. And I just sort of bugged the people who were in charge of making that decision until they said, okay. And uh, my first, my first Planescape project was Planewalker's Handbook. And uh, Planewalker's Handbook was interesting in that this was sort of the player's version of the box set, which was kind of for the DM. And so it encompassed everything. It, I, and so it required that right at the get-go, I achieved sort of this mastery of the setting. And I knew, you know, all the crazy stuff about how many pluses your magic sword lost if you went to this plane and and how this spell worked on that plane and and all that kind of arcane stuff but also you know in the more imaginative parts of the setting and the and the kind of crazy stuff and it also allowed me to create some new stuff like we made modrons a player character race and uh you know it we that that was actually where the uh, Ganassi were born, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of part elemental creatures, and um, and so it. I think it it kind of because by that point Zeb had already left TSR uh, to go work for a computer computer game company. It sort of put me in the position of being one of the people who knew the most about the setting because I had to to write that book. And so it just became natural then that I worked on a lot of other products along with uh, designer Colin McComb who, who did, you know, if not as much as I did, almost, I mean, he, he did a ton of stuff on Planescape. Uh, and then uh, editor Ray Valise and editor Michelle Carter. And I would kind of say that the four of us were sort of the Planescape team eventually i mean there were some other great writers uh wolfgang bauer uh and uh you know a lot of other people worked a little bit on planescape but it kind of cemented right around that plane walkers handbook time that the four of us along with creative director andrea heyday sort of uh became the planescape team and, and we worked on pretty much everything together and that was another really big strength of the game, if I can just throw that in, mm-hmm. was that Planescape was very, very much a team effort. I mean, every single product, rather than just some designer going off into a room by themselves, was very collaborative um, and uh, really benefited from the creativity of the entire team. Right on. Now, you've said a couple times that there was that this is you know arguably one of the most creative things that... that- um, TSR had put out and uh, one of the, the most unusual things in, in D&D and all that um, and because of the stories it could it, you could tell in it, what specifically drew you into this? Like what kind of stories can you tell in Planescape that you otherwise didn't get to play around with? Well, I think that it was the fact that Planescape kind of worked around the edges of reality um, both literally and figuratively, so that you could just you could just you could do anything 
Um, and I know that we, you know, we think, oh, it's in a fantasy game, you can do anything. But you know, in Planescape, it really kind of pushes the the envelope of what anything is. You know, if you want, you know, a, a, a place where, uh, you know, there's a there's a another another ground up in the sky that is upside down from the position where you are, and you look up and you see houses and buildings and mountains and trees, but it's up in the sky upside down. That can be Planescape, right? I mean, anything that you can sort of conceive of, you know, worlds that are square, that are cubes rather than spheres and, you know, all kinds of just crazy stuff. There there literally is no limit. And that freedom uh, was, was – enabled you to just kind of, you know, I don't know, in a sort of 60s – drug blow your mind kind of way <laughs> you know you could just kind of sit back and say wow man think of all the crazy stuff and we did and we uh you know we we kind of i think captured that and 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 part of how we captured that was a different approach to writing adventures and source books and whatnot for a role-playing game in that it wasn't filled with hard and fast details it was filled with ideas and possibilities. So in a, in a regular sort of setting, you might say, you know, this town is exactly 37 miles away from that town. And this is exactly how many buildings are in this town and, and that kind of stuff, which is cool. Um, but Planescape took a kind of different approach and it was you sort of felt like you were rather than reading some encyclopedic entry, you were sort of hearing the the voice of another person who had been there once before and was like, you know, there's this town and it's on the other side of these mountains and it's really weird and the buildings are made of solidified fire and I don't know how that works. Nobody really seems to know exactly how that works, but there it is. And you know, it was just kind of this feeling of of infinite possibilities, even in the approach to the to the products. So, what I guess in some ways that makes me think. Uh, a lot of times in DD, I feel like there's almost has to be like this realism within the world in world realism. And when I got to Planescape, it was like you were just saying, like sometimes there's just no answer; it just happens. Right, right. Um, you know, it's a it's a different kind of sensibility where. You know, we would start out a lot of. I mean, this seems really small, but if it, it actually has really big implications, we would start out a lot of sentences in the source book by saying "some people say" mm-hmm. or "sometimes" or you know those kinds of not definitive sorts of statements that kind of really change the way you look at a setting. Um, and it also really gives the game master, the dungeon master, a lot more freedom, um, you know, because it doesn't sort of nail him or her down. It it rather sort of empowers them and, and enlightens them. Yeah. I mean, you sort of built that into some of the design, too, right? Like one of the, one of the product I'm looking at uh, for the episode is Tales from the Infinite Staircase. Cool. Uh, and there's a, a specific moment in there where they're trying to hunt down a um, a murderer, and there's just a list of things that you hear, as well as what's true and what's not. You know, and just the idea that you put into a book. Hey, here's a bunch of lies you can tell your players. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, and the interesting thing to me is is that if you look at the at the 
sort of the history of the game as a whole, that's more like what the game was like at its very roots. Mm-hmm. It was it was sort of much more kind of limitless and you know, some of this stuff is true and some of this isn't and, and you know that 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 kind of feel. It wasn't until Quite a bit later on, I think more of a, a second edition kind of approach where it was everything was kind of laid out in this very encyclopedic way, which is, you know, I'm not trying to diss it because uh, I, I, I see the value in that as well. But if, you know, once you start talking about the planes, you, you almost can't take that approach, right? Because, you know, you're talking about. Uh, multiple infinite spaces with, you know, each one of them having their own laws of reality. Um, you know, how do you, how do you systematically uh, catalog such a thing? Mm-hmm. So oh, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead, Jeff. No, do you, I was going to say, uh, so a lot of times when there's a lot of experimentation, there's great stuff that comes out of it. And then sometimes there's things that we take a step back and say, mm, I'd rather do that differently next time. Uh, are there any such things that you uh, would like to talk about? Sure. Well, the big one is the way that the the product line ended, which was, you know, sort of like if you if you think of it as as like a TV show, we we sort of got canceled right before the series finale. Mm-hmm. Um, we we had the last Planescape product was called Faction War. Mm-hmm. Where we took the city of Sigil, which is um, you know right at the center of the of the setting, the mo- probably the most important place, and we had this big war basically happen in there between all the different factions that had been building for a long time, and our intention was to then immediately follow this up with a product that would kind of put all the pieces back together again, and you know, and there would be some changes and whatnot. Um, this was. This was at a at a time when um, all the different product lines, all the different game worlds, kind of had these meta stories, um, and you know I'm always actually a little bit leery of the meta story anyway. But um, the, our meta story was was going to be that there was this big war, but then everything comes back together again, and and you know your player characters would play a big part in that. And of course, we had the big war. We had everything get torn down, and then the line was canceled, and the follow-up product never got made. And so we sort of left. Uh, we sort of left Planescape in disarray, I guess. Is um, and uh, that's a, that's a huge regret of mine. Um, Although that, not one you probably had much to do with. I mean, that wasn't no, your call. no, not at all. Um, you know, I, I guess my regret was was taking the line in that direction to begin with, right? Because uh, I, I guess the lesson there learned is that, you know, uh, your your product, every product that you do might be your last, I guess, is, is the lesson to learn. Sure. So uh, in a similar vein, um, clearly working on Planescape was something you did early in your career since it was the first week of, of your time at, at TSR that you got the box set. What did you learn from working in Planescape then that you brought into your work moving on? Oh, um, you know, a lot. Uh, I had so I, I started working in the game industry in '88 in and came to work at TSR in '94, um, but still very much uh, a, the new kid and and very green and and 
you know, kind of had just been doing adventures and source books and whatever the way that they're, you know, we're all at the time, we're always used to seeing them. And Planescape taught me that, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. You can, uh, there isn't anyone out, there isn't some big RPG council up above in the sky that says, you know, an adventure must be this. And, and so that's, that's sort of the big lesson is, is that, you know, you can, this is an imaginative hobby. These are imaginative products. You can present them in any way that you can imagine. Um, you know, so, Many years later, I did, for example, a uh, a setting source book uh, for for D twenty called Talus, uh, mm-hmm. which is a big city. And you know what we did there was we just threw out all the conventions for how to do a big city source book, and we looked at other things like travel guide books and you know things like that. And we did a so we did a book that was, you know, really sort of nothing like it had ever done before. Um, you know, that, that's just an example, probably the best example I can think of, that where uh, Planescape taught me that, that there really were no boundaries. You know, and in a, in a smaller way, the other lesson that immediately comes to mind is that Planescape really taught me that, um, you know, the Game Master will... The game master will sort of take the cues that a game designer gives, and so if if you write a supplement as a game designer or an adventure, and it's very uh, uh, it's very strict and very uh, you know by the numbers, you're sort of you, you're conveying to the to the GM, you know, to play it that way and play it very, you know, by the rules, by the book, that kind of thing, um, which is useful, particularly to someone who maybe hasn't run a game before or hasn't run a lot of games before. But for a more experienced game master, if you just kind of give them a bunch of cool ideas and you tell them, okay, go, you know, create, do things, right? Um, they will do that and they will take they will take that ball and they will run with it in directions that you never imagined. I, uh, one of the cool things about working on Planescape was this. Uh, this was right at sort of the dawn of when the internet became a really important part of the way that like game industry professionals got to communicate with the audience. And so there was a Planescape mailing list and there were some Planescape discussion boards and whatnot. And the things that we would find out that other, that people were doing with Planescape was just so thrilling, you know, to see, to see other people's imaginations, you know, fired by the same things that we were and, and to take it and, and do crazy, wonderful things that we would never have thought of. That's very rewarding. Right on. Now, one of the, I think, more memorable things about Planescape as a setting, or at least one of the things that that stands out to me, you know, even when it had been several years since I have thought about Planescape, mm-hmm. somebody says it and immediately the sling comes to mind. Right. Right. Uh, right. And I notice it, it. It's not pervasive necessarily in in some of the products, but but it's always sort of there. And I'm curious um, what it's like working with this slang of this almost sort of made up language. 
Right. Well, we called it the can't. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zeb is the person who started that. And he started using um, – it was all Victorian slang basically. Um, but uh, beyond that, we we really developed it and made up a bunch of words. We, we kind of – the, every product kind of expanded upon that, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was one of those things where you know some authors kind of handled it better than others, um, and uh, you know it's it's a difficult thing to write in a in a different sort of dialect or patois than you're normally used to writing in. Um, and again, you know, especially if you couple that with the sort of the less concrete approach that I talked about earlier with Planescape mm-hmm. products, it was it, it. Planescape was one of those things where it, it seemed like you either, as a designer, you either loved working on it or it just was too intimidating and you you, you hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was a, it was a lot of fun. I think that you know it, it's better. The the cant is better in some products than in others. Um, it's. Uh, you know, and it's one of those things where, like, if you use it too much, it just is really annoying. And, you know, it's you just want to tell somebody to just shut up and talk English. But, um, <laughs> you know, but if used, uh, in, if used in, 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 uh, in, in small doses and, and, you know, usually in dialect as opposed to somewhere else, uh, you know, in, in just sort of descriptive exposition uh, i think it can add a lot of flavor um and it it certainly gives the setting as a whole an otherworldly feel that you know so you knew you weren't in greyhawk or the forgotten mm. realms you know yeah, it's always been interesting to me that in the infinite expanse of the plains if you call somebody a burke everybody knows what it means <laughs> <laughs> well you know that always got to me too um and one of the things that we tried to focus on was that the the cant was the language of sigil it was the language of the one city and so yeah you might go to you know some other place in limbo or you know asheron or someplace that and they wouldn't have any idea what you're talking about you know right on Trace, anything? Uh, no, I can't think of anything else. Okay. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now then, so if people can keep up with, with Monty Cook and, and his exploits. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, my current endeavor is Monty Cook Games, and our first game came out uh, last summer. It's called Numenera. Uh, it's a brand new role-playing game, brand new uh, set of rules uh, designed to be very uh, narrative and story-based, um, not particularly rules-heavy, which is kind of a change from you know some of the stuff, the third edition D&D kind of things that I've worked on in the past, but uh, I'm really happy with it. It's going really well. Um, we're coming out with uh, another game this year called The Strange, which uses basically the same rules engine, um, and it involves uh, sort of modern-day Earth where people begin to discover that uh, some of the fictional worlds that, that people have created have actually become real, and you can travel to them. And... Uh, uh, it gets it gets strange from there. <laughs> That's the name. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. 
Uh, and so if people want to keep up with what you're doing, where can people find you on the internet? Um, uh, my personal site is montycook.com, but you can find out more about those games at montycookgames.com. That's a clever name. I wonder where you came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been a, a fun walk down memory lane. It's been quite a while since I've uh, got to talk about Planescape. Well, good. Maybe we'll have you on again uh, next time we, we jog through memory lane, huh? Awesome. Sounds great. <laughs> uh, and now we're back from the interview, and let's get into the reviews. Sam, let's start with yours, Well of Worlds. Okay. Um, well, this is a 128-page compilation of adventures that take place in uh, the on different planes. Um, the the adventures range from between eight pages and sixteen pages long, so they're relatively short little things, and they're not really interconnected. So uh, this book is is sort of meant to pull things out of and maybe integrate into your own campaign, maybe have some little side tracks or something. Um, or you could actually, with a tiny bit of work, string them together and make them, you know, from, you know, provide your characters or your players with a campaign that takes them all the way from first level to 11th or 12th. I mean, it's a, I got a pretty big span of level ranges there. Um, and so I'm just going to talk about a couple of the adventures and then I'll briefly touch on the rest of them so that you understand sort of what's included. Uh, the, the first one is really written for a party of four to six uh, characters who really have never had any experience in the planes. And, uh, the adventure is, um, is really, it's, I mean, now in, in 2014, it's almost like ho-hum, uh, it's, it's not something that is, uh, super brand new and, oh my God, I was blown away. On the other hand, uh, this was written in 1994 when Planescape was fairly new mm-hmm. and as, as a non, so let me just give you a little background. I, I have the Planescape box set and I've read it a long, long time ago and, and, and not really did much with it after that. I never played in it. I never ran a game in it. So I'm kind of a, a newbie to Planescape uh, from the from the GM perspective. And this book is a good product for me. So that's going to be my overall takeaway message. And the reason it's a good product is because of this first adventure, because the first ev- adventure is really exemplary of here are the really weird things that occur in the planes, like uh, the the party is they find a portal and they go you know they go through the portal and they end up in the outer planes and they witness a whole bunch of weird stuff they have to uh, role play and and meet a bunch of weird npcs they get pursued because of course they've done bad things uh, within the course of discovering this this planar gate and going through it and uh they kind of take a little tour of 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 the outer planes there and then they end up in sigil where at the end if if it, if you decide as a GM that um, your group is not really set up to really adventure in the planes or they didn't like it as much as you thought they would or you just didn't get the right vibe, then you can send them right back to their prime material plane and continue your campaign. Or you can use Sigil as a base of operations where they have uh, the abil- ability to go to lots of different planes. And then you could continue with some of the other adventures in this particular book. Um, the reason I like the first adventure is that it's relatively simple – but it has a lot of evocative writing. It has a lot of good descriptions of very interesting, strange things that uh, show the players how the the plane, at least the outer planes in this example, differs from their prime material plane. Uh, 
And that's really what's needed because the way that I see it is Planescape is all about the flavor and about what happens when you go to a different plane. And, and by definition, those planes do not use the same rules as the prime material plane. This is not about just going to another quote-unquote world and exploring it and, and doing different things than you would do on your regular world. It's about going to a very strange alien place filled with demons and devils and all kinds of things that are out to get you. And how do you deal with the different people vying for power? That, that's what the game that, – you know, that's what Planescape is about. Um, and the first, the first adventure does a pretty good job of introducing the sort of weird things in a relatively easy, in, in a way that makes it relatively easy for the characters, for the party to get away, you know, with their lives. You know, they're not going to get totally slaughtered, even though Planescape is very dangerous, especially the outer planes. Um, and then it follows up with another adventure that's set for relatively low levels, like two, levels two to four, where the party's in Sigil and they investigate. Um, they investigate one of the mazes. So Sigil is known for these mazes that they that they have, uh, sort of under the sewers, and there's all these sort of ancient mysteries and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's a whole other product about Sigil which <laughs> we're not reviewing, so mm-hmm. I'll leave that as it is. The, the the thing that this adventure lacks is any real detail about Sigil, but it does have a lot of detail about the maze and the way it's set up. You don't really need a lot of detail about Sigil, so that's okay. Um, and it has a little twist at the end. So th- this adventure is kind of interesting, and once again, it sort of allows the players to um, to sort of investigate things that they wouldn't necessarily see on the prime material plane. Um, and then there's a couple more adventures for like two to four level characters, and then there's one for five to eight levels, and then there's a couple for nine and up, and then there's one for 11 to 12. So there's a huge number of adventures in here for for a very big range of of players. A couple of them are very interesting. The art in it goes uh, from mediocre to really great. Um, and some of the adventures, I kind of feel the same. Some of them are relatively mediocre, but a couple of them are really, really great. Uh, one of the adventures, you, um, the party uh, ends up getting involved in the, the blood war between the demons and the devils. And at first it's, uh, it, you know, they sort of unwittingly get involved and then they have to pick sides. And then, you know, if you're running a campaign in, in the Planescape setting, the outcome of that particular adventure could really, really affect how different factions deal with you and, and with the party further on in your campaign as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things about this set of adventures if you're running in Planescape and you intend on having the actions of the party have consequences for the way people react to you and, and the way that faction leaders react to you later, then it's going to be fantastic. Hmm. But if you if you really just want to run a couple of adventures, that will probably be okay too. But if you if you want to sit down and run like all nine of these strung together, it's going to take a little work because you need to make consequences occur. And and part of the way that this part of the thing that makes this supplement cool is there's lots of really interesting NPCs. But you know, if you only see those NPCs in that one adventure, it's not really going to amount to much. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the takeaway, I, I didn't want to sit and like 
extensively describe every single adventure because I don't really think no, that's no, no. helpful. That's but the, the takeaway is that it, the, the adventures range from, from mediocre to really good, but even the mediocre ones have really good qualities. Um, the adventures are a little bit linear, but that's okay because if you're actually running a campaign and, and for example, if you had the other book about Sigil, you could, as the DM, really flesh out some things and make the world come alive, and then it wouldn't seem as linear as, as some of the adventures lead you to believe. Um, the one thing that I really, really liked was the format of these of the adventures. It starts with um, uh, with a quick synopsis for the DM, and then it gives a longer, more detailed backstory, and then it gives you a quick rundown of the sequence of events or, or things that happen, not necessarily in order, depending on how linear the adventure is. And then it gives you the actual details of of places and locations and different things that have to be discussed. And then it tells you what the climax is. And then it gives you some choices for what, what happens after the, the climax. And, and they each follow that same layout. And it's a really great layout because it makes it really easy to find the things that you need to find. Um, and I mean, these adventures are only between eight and 16 pages anyway. So they're not a huge mm-hmm. amount, but it's all bound in one book or it's on one PDF. So, you know, it, it kind of, it really helps to have that sort of sequence of events and, and, and the way, and so the DM immediately understands, okay, here's what happens next. Or if the players go off the rails and they go do something else, I can easily return them to the sort of sequence of events. You know, after they finish up their side quest of, of whatever they choose to do, so I really like the format. I'm not sure if that's a Planescape thing that they do that in all of them, or because I don't have enough experience with it. Mm-hmm. But I really did like it; it was really nice. Well, it's interesting because, um, and I'll get to this with mine as well. But my, I think mine took some of that those concepts when they mm-hmm. when they wrote this book, which came. Yeah. You said yours was '94. This is '94, yeah. And, my, and mine was published in '98, yeah. so. Yeah, so it might just be the a way that they were doing it um, for Planescape. I'm not sure if it's if it goes for all their products, but um, in terms of art and maps, uh, like I said, art also runs from mediocre to really good. Um, and you know, I don't really have much more to say. There, there really was no piece in this book that I looked at and thought, "Wow, that's really awesome." Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms has of the its own art, sort of stylized, it does have its own. Stacks, it does, it does, and it's okay. I don't dislike it, but right. nothing really jumped out at me as the great thing. Um, so overall, it's it's really good. I think it's a good value if you really want to introduce your group to Planescape and you want to and you want to have the choice of two or three different adventures that you could run and try to get them. You know, involved in it and get them involved with some factions and see what they do. Um, and uh, at least two or three of the adventures have some really evocative scenes. Um, and you know, for example, the first one in, in the first one, the, the group is traveling across the outer plains and they run aqua- across this thing called the Pillar of Skulls. Except it's not really a pillar of skulls; it's a pillar of living heads that's like 20 feet tall and all the heads talk and argue with each other. And so it's a very, you know, it's a very interesting, you can, they can parlay with the heads and the heads will argue with them or with each other. And, you know, so it's kind of a really neat scene. That's very evocative of here's this really weird thing that you're not going to see on the regular planes. Um, and so, you know, so there's some really cool stuff like that. And uh, interestingly, I think that pillar of skulls makes an appearance in the Planescape torment uh, video game. Yeah, it might. Yeah, right. I remember yeah. vaguely that being a thing. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so, so you know, I think you know, I'm the target audience for this product because, as I said, I don't have a lot of experience in Planescape, mm-hmm. but I but I find it interesting, and I think 
I I could run my you know I could run my party through a couple of Planescape adventures. I don't know that I'd want to have a whole campaign there. Um, there is one other thing that I have to say, and that is that one of the reasons that the writing is so evocative, and you you'll probably both agree with this because I know it's the same in your products, but uh, the right one of the reasons the writing is so evocative is because of um, the Planescape slang that they use, and so yeah. if you're un- if you're unfamiliar with the Planescape slang, the cant, it's called the cant with, with the cant. Uh, it's going to be really hard to read, <laughs> uh-huh. um, and I have the box set, so I just pulled out my little reference page, you know, with all the meanings. And it, and once you get into the flow, it really makes a lot of sense. Mm. But sometimes th- things seem like they're worded very awkwardly, or you're not really sure what they're saying if you're unfamiliar with yeah. with the language. And so that's sort of one caveat that uh, uh, if you don't really know that uh, the book is thick with it, I mean, I'm sure you in, could find in every a, sentence. a guide on. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure if you Google it, there's probably a Wikipedia page that says all of the you know everything. Yeah. But but just so you know, you might have to mm-hmm. print out a few pages and have them next to you because yeah. the book literally every paragraph has two or three pieces of slang mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. and you mine, just get mine used to that it. Thick. So. This one is thick with it because oh, yeah, once again, the, the job of it is about – the job of it is to really give you the feeling of Planescape and that's mm-hmm. part of it, right? Language conveys culture and that's one of the things that Planescape was really good at was using the language to convey that culture and of course, it's Planescape. So the culture isn't all that pleasant, <laughs> mm-hmm, right? right. Um, and But it's very evocative as a result. So that's, yeah, so that's I, a, good, a good thing and a bad thing, right? I mean – yeah, yeah, I found the same same exact thing, and I haven't been to Planescape since I was probably twelve. Um, mm-hmm. So I had to uh, look up stuff on the internet, and there are tons of slang dictionary guides and stuff that you can use. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, within like three pages, I was like, I got the feel of it, and it was great. <laughs> um, so, any other questions for Sam? I keep taking over and not letting Tracy run things. So, Jeff, which product did you review? <laughs> oh, it's my turn to talk? Awesome. <laughs> um, I reviewed Tales from the Infinite Staircase, uh, designed by Monty Cook from our interview. You may remember him. Um, published in 1998. Um, and it is also a sort of anthology of eight different adventures. But unlike Sam's, these are intended to be linked. So you can run them individually or you can run them uh, as one sort of large you know, campaign. Um, the Tales from the Infinite, Infinite Staircase has, has a few things on it that I thought were really interesting and good, right? The locations were really cool. Um, it had a lot of different planner locations, sort of like Sam was saying, tell, giving you this sort of really alien, sort of weird thing. Um, one of them I, I really liked from Tale 3 um, was this weird, like, you you end up on this plane. This plane is really small. Like, end to end is like 120 miles total. It's a 120-mile cube plane. Um, or demi-plane, actually. But you show up, and it's raining, and it's this black rain, and it pools up, and this whole th- the whole world is covered in these in, in mountainous sort of ridges. Um, and, and so the, the, the black rain sort of pools up in, in, in between the ridges, and it turns out that 
there's little worms and giant powerful creatures sort of living inside of this black water that's collecting. But the black water itself is an actual living entity that wants to kill you all. Um, but it's afraid of the little things that swim in it. Um, actually, it's afraid of the big things, but the big things worship the little worm things. Uh, so it's got this whole weird ecosystem going on. And then there's this other creature that lives in the, underneath the world in these caves and tunnels and it pulls you in or if you get too close you know tentacles reach out and pull you in um and then if you're willing to let it cleanse you it sort of cleanses you in fire and it turns out it's a good creature right it just doesn't want you to be tainted and bring your taint into the world and what have you and then it becomes a uh, a transportation system like if you need to go from one spot in the plane to another spot in the plane just let this thing's tentacles grab you and it'll pull you around through these tunnels and pop you out where you wanted to go right as long as you're willing to to be cleansed um, and then there's these different tribes of people who live in this world who you know used to be human back in the day but they've been here for so long that it's changed them and they actually let the worm things like burrow into them and become hosts and they get certain abilities from it but but mostly it means that the the living black water entity leaves them alone right because he's, he's afraid of of these giant creatures that that worship the worms so it's got these weird sort of alien things going on right and it's got all kinds of interesting stuff and each of the um eight different locations or eight different chapters or tales or whatever you want to call them um each of them gives you an equally sort of evocative and interesting and different location Right, so the locations are really cool. The infinite staircase itself is a location that's really cool. That's actually how the whole thing starts. Tail one is is the first one you're supposed to do, and it's basically, hey, somebody hired you to to make this delivery. This person is on a guild, and the guild has actually taken uh, a landing of the infinite staircase as its, it's is it the home of the guild, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you make your delivery there, and you discover there's a there's been a, a demon running around destroying parts of the staircase. And hey, it'd be awfully sweet if you went and took care of that for us. And good job. And now the people who take care of the staircase like you, and they want to give you another task to go out and investigate this weird iron shadow thing that's infecting the planes. And that's sort of the setup, the hook for the entire uh, uh, book. Right. Um, so the locations are interesting. The NPCs that they use are really cool. Sprinkled it throughout all the tales and all the locations, there's these little NPCs which aren't central to the whole thing but are really interesting and, and have unique details and motivations that help them really come alive. A lot of the situations are really cool. A lot of moral quandaries without necessarily forcing it to be unnecessarily edgy or anything like that. Um, you know, a lot of questions about, you know, do we fight? Do we flee? Which should be a central tenant of Planescape because you're always going to run into something bigger and more powerful than you in Planescape, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the construction of the whole thing was also very interesting. Um, it was, like I've mentioned, it's nine different tales and you basically run the first one. And then after that, you're, you're told, okay, now here's eight more places you can go. Have at it, you know, and you can go in any order or whatever. Um, and then there's this interesting sort of step track. It says, you know, at step two, these things happen. At step three, these things happen. And so the stories in the other places that you haven't gone yet continue to evolve and change. And so when you start each tale, you're supposed to look at the section, uh, this adventure note section and say, okay, what step are we at? This, these are the people that are there right now or the things that are going on there right now or whatever. And then it also goes through, and if you've done this or if you've done this or if you've encountered this, then these other things could be going on as well. So it makes it really interesting and dynamic in that way. Okay? Mm-hmm. So those are the things I really like about the, the product. <laughs> 
but I had <laughs> some problems. Nice. I had some problems too. I like to start with the good, but I had some some issues. Um, some of the really interesting elements fail to pay off. You know, I was just talking about all these interesting elements and, and the construction process and all this. And, and one of those, there's a hound archon that's discovered this iron shadow thing that's been, I should explain what the iron shadow is because it's sort of central to the whole thing. Um, the iron shadow is, it's almost like a magical disease that's spreading throughout the planes. And as people travel from one plane to another plane, they're carrying it with them and spreading it. And the ultimate sort of, um, what, what the iron shadow is, is it's basically just, Law, you know, because the planes are all about law versus chaos, good versus evil, and everything's sort of set up on that that paradigm. So this is sort of the ultimate law: no evil, no good. It's just straight up law. And how, if everything is so incredibly ordered, it destroys inspiration. Without chaos, there's no inspiration, there's no creativity, and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, you're, you're constantly traveling through the planes and running into things, and, and everybody's just sort of in this in this malaise and this funk, and they stopped creating things, and they you know, and whatever. And so there's a, there's a hound archon who's noticed this as well, and he's going out and investigating it. And so that's one of the things that shows, you know, if you're at step five and you're in this location, this is where the hound archon is this, during this step. And he's over here at that step and whatever. And he's checking it, checking out all these things too. And you might bump into him once, twice, several times, depending on what order you go in, in, to places. And that, that whole thing seemed really interesting to me, but it never really goes anywhere. It's like, okay, great, but then where does he end up? What does he do? How is he actually important to this larger story? Like, I felt like there should have been something with this hound archon that just never really happened other than, hey, you might bump into this guy. He's got a dog head. Okay. <laughs> you know? And there's things like that uh, sprinkled throughout that, that just never really like, okay, but where's this going and what is it? why does it matter? Um, I found a lot of the text to be overly wordy. Like, each encounter had weird names, not even making it clear what was going on in that section, making it hard for reference. You know, it's fine enough for reading like a novel, but it's hard to reference. Um, and then some of the locations, which are fairly straightforward and simple, would take up half a page or a full page of text just describing it. You know, which seemed unnecessary, and that you could have used that to to you know keep the page count, but but eliminate some of that stuff, you know, tighten it up a little bit, and you could have included some of the things that I think it was missing, like a hook. I thought the hook was weak. That mm -hmm. tail one is basically you're randomly hired by somebody here. Deliver this to my wizard friend. Mm -hmm. Once you've delivered it, you're pretty much done. There's some trouble going on. Nobody's encouraging you or hiring you or expecting you to go take care of it, but you know. There's some trouble going on, you know. Um, and then if you go and, and fix the trouble with this this, uh, I think it was a demon running around destroying the infinite staircase. Then the keepers of the infinite staircase, the Lalindi, come up and say, "Hey, thanks for doing that. Want to do some more stuff for us? We've noticed this weird thing going on." Because the the Iron Shadow is sort of antithetical to um, the the infinite staircase itself, which is supposed to connect to the most creative and artistic places in the planes. Right? That's what it does. Um, and so they give you sort of this unnecessarily vague, almost prophecy-like thing of different places they want you to check out. It's like, but they know where they want you to check out. Why don't you to just say, go through that door and check out what's going on there and go through that door and, you know, but they don't. Um, so the hook is kind of weak. And then you, then throughout the whole thing, your basic storyline is the Lalindi asked you to run around and find out what was going on with this iron shadow thing. They didn't say fix it. They didn't say whatever, find out where it came from, any of that. They just sort of said, hey, check out these eight places and tell us what's going on. Hmm. That's kind of a weak story, right? And, and yeah. 
and, and given how the t- the tales are to be played in any order, it doesn't really lead you anywhere. Um, you know, and you can actually find a cure. There are different pieces you can put together and find a cure for the Iron Shadow and and fix all these planes that have been affected by it. Um, but there's no reason to do so outside of you know the kindness of your heart. And it's hard for me to believe that a party who's going to be successful through this adventure is going to do this kind of thing out of the kindness of the heart because you're also asking them in some stories to make moral compromises like, hey, let's go work with a bunch of slod or devils or whatever, right? It's, why am I going to care about fixing the planes if yeah. I'm also willing to work with devils and so, slod? So one of the <laughs> things that my, that my product did really well was it set up the reason why the party would be doing this thing. And a lot of times... You know, it, it sounds kind of cliche to fall back on, but, you know, so in the plains, there are all kinds of factions that rule things. And the leader of the faction is called the Factole. And mm-hmm. the Factole can tell anyone in that faction that they have to do something. And it's an order, almost like a military order. You know, I don't mean that it's going to be like a military movement, but it, if, you, if you're in the military and you're, you're outranked and someone gives you an order, you go do it. And that's the relationship between a factole and the party. So if they had a relatively weak hook, all they had to do was say, okay, you are being dominated by this faction because you might not want to work for them. But for whatever circumstance, you're now stuck working for them until you've repaid some sort of debt. And so you're ordered to do this thing. You're going to go do it. You might try to get out of it, but you're going to go do it because if not, they're going to slaughter you. Mm Mm-hmm. So having weak hooks is kind of seems, you know, it's a struggle. Like, yeah, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. That's a real struggle cuz yeah, I mean, it's not like you can hang out in the plains and you're the goody two shoes and you're just going to walk into the abyss and do whatever. I mean, if that's the adventure, fine, but if you're off doing other things, what's the reason to do those things if they're going to challenge your beliefs? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not, you know, a character is not going to do that necessarily. It ta- you know, it takes a special kind of party to to adventure in the plains, I think. And Absolutely. And if you're the, and if you're the maybe kind the of party assumptions if you're the kind your, of party who's going to be yeah. willing to make the moral compromises that are necessitated by walking around in the plains, mm-hmm. then you're also not <laughs> right. the kind of people that are going to go around and fix things just for the sake of fixing things. Right. Well, that's that's right. exactly my point, right? Like, it, it, like if the if the adventure that's written for the plains needs a goody two shoes to go do something, um, then there's an issue, right? Like, even so, in in mine, there's this one adventure where there's all sorts of different, uh, like, sort of tasks that they have to do in all these different adventures um which was actually a good thing i forgot to mention was the variety of different tasks that it, mm-hmm. that these adventures will require but one of them is to actually rescue a city because there's a city that's really close to a gate and every once in a while if the city's really close to a gate the sort of chaos seeps through the gate and it sucks the city under down into the abyss and but the first thing that the module says is look you know these are these are characters that are in the plains they may decide not to rescue the city and here's what you do if that's what they decide mm-hmm. you know yeah. i mean it just it takes care of that eventuality because you're not going to be a lawful good person going and rescuing chaotic evil things in the plains mm-hmm. Well, and this adventure has a ton of variety and a, and a ton of you know interesting things going on and, and places to go and different tasks to do. You know, sometimes it's you know you need to you're got to play the role of diplomat, and sometimes you got to play the role of of the destroyer, and sometimes you got to be the guy searching through the the ancient um, 
infinitely large library that has a copy of every book ever ever written anywhere on the plains. And sometimes it's um, you know you're searching the ruins of of a city that was just destroyed like last week. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's a murder mystery. Like it's got all those things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not really tied together to a real story as to why you should be doing a lot of those things. Um, and then I, it also sort of uh, bothers me that there's no real conclusion. Like once you, you – your whole hook, as weak as it was, was, hey, go investigate the Iron Shadow everywhere and come back and tell, let us know. OK. So I've done that. There's still Iron Shadow everywhere and, and you know, <laughs> slowly everything's going to be destroyed. But you know, whatever. I've done my job. Or what happens with all those NPCs that are really interesting that never really right. goes, goes anywhere like the Hound Archon? Uh, or if you choose to decide to cure the Iron Shadow, fine. That's great, but it also specifically calls out the fact that we're not going to tell you where it came from, and so this whole thing could just start all over again. <laughs> I would have really loved to see a chapter nine that said, okay, you start with one, you do one, two through eight in any order you want, and then nine, you wrap this whole thing up and finish the story, right? I think that could have saved a lot of it for me. Yeah. So. Um, other than that, the artwork I found, uh, while I, I'm, I recognize and I'm used to the, the Planescape sort of style, I found a lot of the artwork to be, I don't know, almost childish, um, hmm. cartoony, more cartoony than I expect from, from Planescape, which is usually more gritty, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the product doesn't make this claim, but the entry at, at D&D Classics very clearly says this product is meant to be a crossover product usable with the Forgotten Realms. Uh, this <laughs> <Really>? is a lie. <laughs> okay. um, there, now, it talks about how you could start from Sigil or you could start from a prime world. And they don't. It, there's no indication anywhere that has anything to do with the realms other than the infinite staircase exists on a plane called the Gate of the Moon, which is ruled by the goddess Seluni which is the Forgotten Realms goddess of the moon. But Planescape does that all the time. Like there's also ancient Greek gods mentioned in the book. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's intended to be a crossover with the right. ancient Greece. Yeah. Right? That's just what Planescape does. It pulls from all kinds of settings and sources. Um, so it's not a realms crossover product, no matter what the description at, at D&D Classic says. And the product itself doesn't make any claim to be. So – yeah. So let me. I want to address uh, one thing that you said there towards the end before the before the Forgotten Realms thing, and that mm-hmm. was that the it, when you f- complete this one thing, it could actually just keep going back and happening again. That's actually a one of the sort of philosophies that that some people have in in the planes. Mm-hmm. It's called the unity of rings, yes. right? And it's the, the idea that everything in the planes is on a circle, and no matter what direction you go, you, you find yourself right back where you began. So everything keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening, and and sort that's sort of one of the um, tenets of of the one of the one of the actual adventures of this in, in this particular module as well. But it actually explains it and explains why, and it and it gives the players choices about what they want to do about it, and if they want to try to break the ring or if they want to just let it happen again, or you know. So it's actually more well more developed. Well, and and if you're right, if if this adventure had given me here's the cause, then I could have at least dealt with it if they wanted to try mm-hmm. to actually solve the problem. But right. without it, there's no conclusion. It's yeah. just a because you never know where they're going to end. They could have gone in right. any order. Um, there's sort of – if you go vaguely in the order that it's published in, like you finish with, at, at the city of the Chitin, which are, are uh, chain devils, 
mm-hmm. you end up at the city of Chitin, and it was one of the the head Chitin guys who discovered the Iron Shadow and was purposely spreading it throughout the plains because he thought that's awesome. You know, let's all be orderly because you know he's a lawful evil and, and wants to spread order. Um, so you could kind of say, okay, well at least this is where the recent outbreak. This is patient zero. You know, we can deal with that. That doesn't mean that the virus isn't still out there and we don't know where he got it or, you know, he just sort of, it just sort of happened to him or whatever. Um, but they never really explained it. And they specifically say, and we're not going to explain it. Nobody really knows, which is fine. But it also means that we never really got a strong conclusion. Um, you know, ultimately I think this product is a really interesting starting point for an advanced DM to run a, a Planescape campaign. Um, I think you can take a lot of the locations, a lot of the ideas, and if you're willing to create a stronger story around what's here, you could put something together that's really interesting. Um, but it's going to require a lot of work. And personally, as a, as a DM, I don't buy modules so I can make my own story, right? I buy modules to, to so they can do that for me so I don't have to do as much work, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was a little disappointed with the whole thing. I was really looking forward to it. Um, I really respect Monty Cook as a designer. Uh, I'm, I really like Planescape. I played a lot of Planescape back in my in the second edition days. Um, and, and I was promised a connection to the Forgotten Realms, and everybody knows I'm a big Realms fan. Um, so I was really looking forward to things and kind of just was disappointed with the story construction of the whole thing, so... Questions for me? Uh, did you find it was a good uh, introductory Planescape adventure? Or it sounds like you pretty much had to know a lot about Planescape, even as a player, to be um, able to actually, get a lot out of it. Actually, I'd say that um, n- it's actually fairly strong in terms of it. I don't think you need the campaign guide to, to run this product. I mean, it is, oh, wow. it is built from a, from a perspective of you can run this as here's a bunch of people who are going to the realms for the very first time and this is their experience. And it works pretty well in that way. Um, so I don't – I think you could actually – if you're willing to build the story around it, you could run the adventures from this product um, as written without the campaign guide. Oh, wow. So. That's great. Yeah. Any other questions? Nope. I interrupted him when I had my questions. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, cool. okay uh, so James, do you want to talk about your product? Sure. Uh, I took a look at Harbinger House, uh, which is for four to six PCs, level uh, uh, four to seven. Um, and it's a, this adventure takes place mostly in Sigil. Uh, there's a sort of interlude in the Outlands for a little bit, but for the most part, it takes place in the city and in Harbinger House, which is actually a insane asylum for people who may become powers, which are essentially gods. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, and it's, uh, I, I really enjoyed the adventure overall. I would say it's what murder in Baldur's Gate should have been. Hmm. Um, it starts off with this very interesting series of murders and it's a murder mystery. And then, uh, it's sort of the characters slowly uncover that all of these various murders and evil doings that are happening around Sigil 
are about people trying to turn into these powers. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in that respect, it's very much like Murder in Baldur's Gate. All of the sort of factions we've talked about uh, get involved a little bit. So um, it's it's really very interesting. I would say uh, you do need to know Planescape well to play it. Uh, and the book is very upfront about that. It says not only should the DM be familiar with Planescape, but the party, it shouldn't be their first time in Planescape. Um, and I would definitely agree with that. I was also pulled in by the really evocative language. Um, and I would say it's not a product for a, uh, you know, a novice DM either. So not only should you be familiar with Planescape, I think you should be sort of familiar with D&D as a whole. Um, and uh, and then the other thing I was sort of neutral on was that the the artwork I found some of it was really cool and some of it was not. Yeah, uh, I'm, look, I'm looking at the artist list for this book and it's really long. There were like what uh, ten different artists or so that worked on this, whereas mine had like one or two. Yeah, for about four you know full page illustrations. So I'm yeah. not sure why there were so many uh, artists involved. Um, but you can see because the, the art styles look different throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I'll start with what I liked about it. Um, you know, I did find it planted a lot of nice seeds. I thought the murder mystery component to it, you know, it's a three part adventure. It starts with all of these murders are happening in sigil. Somebody is murdering people from lawful factions in a very ritualistic way. Um, and, uh, it's sort of, so he's escaped from this insane asylum harbinger house and he is trying to perform a ritual that will turn him into a power will, you know, he will, uh, be birthed sort of again as a God. Um, and so you can see each of the murders are related and each body has more sort of, uh, slashes across it because every time he kills somebody he needs to add a different wound to it um and uh and so all the lawful factions get involved because they want to find out who is uh killing their people and great clues are left behind there are some really fun witness interviews to do um you know sigil in my mind because it's this place where you know the planes sort of overlap it should sort of be like the cantina in star wars mm-hmm. um and uh and i found that they have a lot of really interesting diverse npcs you know uh a, a lot of different races coming in there um and the villains in the adventure are really cool there is a uh you know a succubus who is sort of orchestrating all of this stuff and there is a sociopathic genius on uh you know bent on becoming a god and then there is a uh you know a bard with like a beautiful silvery voice who is obsessed with the lady of pain and begins a cult that worships her which is a big no-no mm-hmm. uh in sigil <laughs> and so you know so that was great um, I thought they had some great advice on running the mystery investigation portion of it because, you know, the players sort of drive that as investigators and, you know, you can't really railroad them to like, okay, we're going here and now we're going here. And it had some great advice about like, uh, you know, if the players go over here, this is a great way to do this. And if they go here first, here's a way this could happen. And at this point, here's who's following them and watching them from the shadows and um, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, it has a crazy ritual to achieve godhood, which is always really fun. Uh, it has some really cool handouts in there, like pages from journals and stuff that you can give to people. 
and I thought a lot of the big set piece encounters are really fun. There's a you know a burning, collapsing building where a guy is trying to suck souls out of people, and you have to decide whether to put out the fires or escape or fight this guy or you know. And there's a, a rooftop encounter, and at the very end, there's a big encounter on a like a god machine that explodes and. Uh, you know, so big, fun, sort of over-the-top uh, style encounters and chase sequences. And within the dungeon at the very end, and the dungeon crawl, which is makes up the, the third final part of the adventure, you know, it's within this sort of celestial insane asylum. Um, so, And that's really great. They have some really cool NPCs that you interact with. Uh, some of them are sort of like cliche crazy people. Um, you know, but, but, uh, for the most part, it's, it's, it's fun. It's creepy. Um, you know, uh, I feel like because I did Ravenloft, I'm like the creepy dungeon crawl guy mm-hmm. now a little bit, but it was, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's really fun and interesting. And there's these neat mind bending puzzles that like, if you kill someone in trying to solve a puzzle, you accidentally turn them into a god. And there are consequences <laughs> for that. Um, <laughs> uh, so all of that stuff, uh, you know, that's the the really fun. It's a big, fun romp through Sigil and, and a little bit through the Outlands. And then it ends in this fun dungeon crawl. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the villains were great. I did have a few problems with it. One was that I did think the hooks were a little weak. Um, uh, like Jeff said, I, I, some of the hooks, it was like, you'll do this because somebody's asking you to, you know, um, which is not necessarily the case in a big adventure like this. Um, especially if you're in the plains and there are all these factions and your party could be allied with, a you know, a chaos faction who's happy that all of these lawful people are, or, or doesn't care. You know, that all these lawful people are are biting it. So that could be, um, you know, one of the things I think that makes it hard is is the hooks are a little bit weaker. Um, But to that end, they do have some advice of like, if the party's not going for it, try this. How about this? How about this? I just sort of wish they led with the stronger stuff. Mm. Um, And then the other thing is they have, uh, particularly within the murder mystery part, they have so many red herring false rumors um that could easily see a party being sucked down the rabbit hole it seems like there's more (laughs) fake information than there is real information and just butting their head running into to dead ends and things like that uh you know i don't think i think if i were to run it i wouldn't want to feed them as much false information because then it's going to get to the point where they don't trust anybody and they just go do something else um, you know, and I also found, I thought the ritual was really cool. What this guy was trying to do, like it was this really interesting story engine that the PCs never really find out about. Um, and I thought it would be cool if at, you know, a halfway or two thirds through the adventure, they find out like, Oh, this is the way in which this villain is trying to achieve his goal sort of directly. And now the stakes have been raised and we really need to stop every single one of these murders because not only is it just innocent people dying, which is a bad thing. It's, you know, this guy is going to become a God of murder and slaughter, which is an even worse thing. We got enough Um, of those. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Uh, And there are a few railroady moments um, where it's like, 
uh, you know, like, oh, this guy needs to get away at this point and he's going to get away through a portal and nobody can follow him through it, you know, um, which uh, as a DM, I hate like I, I want to see my players jump through that portal after the guy, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, right. Like, I want to see them be those big heroes, but I feel like every published adventure has those moments because they don't know and, the, you know, they, and have they don't have an infinite story. page count. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They can't prepare for anything. So, um, you know, again, I think an experienced DM would know uh, more clever and interesting ways to deal with that. And then because that ritual isn't explained, at the end, you as the characters have some choice as to, like, we could elevate one of two people to godhood and one of them will become the god of peace and love and understanding and the other one will become the god of murder and slaughter and but because they don't have an understanding of how the ritual works they may not necessarily have figured out how to do that Mm. um you know so and i and i feel like you're robbing the characters of a really cool reward and ending of like, yeah, we did it. You know, we elevated the right person to godhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but but overall, like I said, I think it would be a really fun. It's a fun romp through sigil with some crazy characters. You get to meet some really cool people, and there are some really great set piece encounters um, that I think would be really fun to run. And the mystery, I think, is very well designed uh and i've probably given away a lot of it so uh sorry about that retroactive spoiler Um, alert yeah exactly uh but if you are a dm i i uh i suggest you run it and it was this one was published between your guys adventures so it was published in 95 so a little closer to sam's uh end yeah, and I noticed like mine was pub- uh, was uh, designed by Monty Cook, who was one of the the Planescape staples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam's was done by Colin McComb, who's an, who's pretty much the other guy who who did Planescape, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Harbinger House was done by Bill Slavasek, who only did two Planescape mm-hmm. products in his very long career uh, working on D anD. d and yours and Harbinger House is also the cheaper of the of the three on D and D classics. It's only five bucks. The other two are selling for ten bucks. I think, at, I think Harbinger um, House is uh, smaller though, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's about seventy, pa- it's 70 pages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and most so you, of that is a DM screen, uh, or not most of it, but the last couple pages are a DM screen mm-hmm. that you need that's included. Oh, nice. so, yeah. James, when you were talking, you reminded me of something that about my thing that I forgot to say that I hated. It has one thing in it that I absolutely hate. <laughs> and that is uh, one of the adventures has a predetermined ending, uh, and I and regardless of how so and the, the problem is that the adventure is written it, it it's a hunt in the beast lands, and something goes wrong and you become the hunted right so spoiler alert uh, <laughs> that happens like in the first scene so it doesn't matter um, but then it has a predetermined ending. And I absolutely hate that. Mm-hmm. It, it's the worst thing in the world. And I understand why they did it because the idea was to give this sort of introduction to how to run a really great chase. And it does a really great job with that and it gives lots of good advice about how to run this really interesting chase. And then it has a predetermined ending and it really ruined it for me for that particular adventure. Yeah. Um, but this product, I mean, it has a lot of it has like an homage to Romeo and Juliet. It's a little interesting thing, and it has like it has this one the the, the last adventure, and it actually has something really cool. And that the party goes into this area where they're 
they're in this area where the the de- there's this deafening sound all around them, so they can't talk, they can't communicate verbally, so they have to use hand signals, and the and it tell it tells the DM like make sure the players don't the players can talk to you and say here's what I'm doing or here's what my character's doing or so and so does whatever, but they can't talk to each other. So <laughs> I'm just imagining my group like sitting around the table, and it's for like nine to eleventh level characters, so you know they're pretty advanced characters, but they're having to you know resort to hand <laughs> motions. It's kind of an interesting like there's lots of really cool things they tried. So yeah. along with the the predetermined ending. Of the one that I absolutely hated. The other stuff is pretty cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think we've got three very interesting insights to three very different products, all dealing with Planescape. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to go ahead and call this the end of the episode. I want to thank Sam Dillon for joining us. Sam, people can find yes. you places. Oh, yeah. RPG Musings or <laughs> RPG or on the, uh, on the staff page at thetomeshow.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've got your stuff linked over there, so you can always go to the staff page and find all of Sam. Uh, James Introcaso. Yes, people can find me on Twitter, J A M E S I N T R O C A S O, or you can check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the homebrew world I'm building for the new edition of D and D. It's at uh, WorldBuilderBlog.me. And I want to thank everybody out there for supporting the show and checking out the affiliate links at dndclassics.com. If you are interested in any of these products, you might you know, go to thetomeshow.com and, and click on the banner to D&D Classics to, if you're going to do any, any shopping. Um, or Amazon. We also have an Amazon affiliate link there, and that helps uh, keep things going and, and keeping us uh, you know, in equipment and, and paying our bills and what have you. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And as always, show notes and other great Tome Show shows are available at thetomeshow.com. And that has been episode 236, where we tried to give you the chant to take a bunch of primes like you and turn you into a real cutter. A regular plane walker, if you will. In this episode of The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone. I'm off the wall.